Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. John chapter 1. As we continue through the book of John... You know, I came across an interesting story about a man named Kirk Bloodsworth. You may never have heard of a man named Kirk Bloodsworth, but back in 1984, he was convicted of murder, premeditated murder, of a nine-year-old girl in Maryland. And all along, he pled his innocence. He said, I did not do this. I, I did not do this. I am innocent. And he was thrown into prison, claiming that he was innocent, serving two life sentences in 1985. In 1992, it was the time where DNA evidence was just making its rise, and he read about this. And so he asked the the powers that be, could we reopen my case and bring some DNA evidence into the picture? And so the judge says, yes, we'll reopen the case. And they actually found evidence in the judge's office located in a paper bag that had DNA evidence that said this man was innocent. He served nine years in prison. He was on death row twice. He was finally released in 1993, and he was exonerated in 2003 when the real killer, a man named Kim Ruffner, confessed to actually committing the crime. Now, the interesting thing was that Kirk Bloodsworth and Kim Ruffner were in the same prison, just one floor above each other. And the whole time that Kirk Bloodsworth was there, he was suffering for a crime that he knew he did not commit. Now, here's the kicker. What really put him in prison were five eyewitnesses that testified to his crime. But the DNA evidence came back and said that he was innocent. Now, how frustrating it would be to spend nine years in prison, twice on death row, for a crime you knew you did not commit, and you're so frustrated with the eyewitnesses that got it wrong. How could they get it wrong? You see, if you were a prosecuting attorney, here's what you'd want. You'd want the best of both worlds. You'd want DNA evidence that's foolproof, and expert eyewitnesses to corroborate the crime. You'd you'd want the best of both worlds, evidence and eyewitnesses for an airtight case. Now, you may ask, well, how does this relate to the Gospel of John? Well, we get to the part where eyewitnesses and evidence is very, very important to the story of Jesus. For the past few weeks, we've been in the prologue of the Gospel of John. We've been in the, the deep theological waters of who Jesus is, Remember I said it's deep enough that an elephant can swim, and yet it's shallow enough that a child can play. There's truths here that we need to learn, but we're moving out of theology into action. 
We're going to see Jesus into action. If you remember last week, we ended with that idea that Jesus exegetes or Jesus narrates or Jesus tells the whole story of who God is and what God's plan is for us. And now we're going to see that in action. But what becomes important is eyewitness testimony. And the first eyewitness is John the Baptist. All four Gospels show John the Baptist as the key witness the forerunner, the one that comes before Jesus announcing that he's on the scene. And so what we have here is we have the expert eyewitness of John the Baptist corroborated by evidence from heaven pointing to Jesus as the Son of God. So here's the main point of our text this morning. It's very simple. You need to hear John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus can totally take away your sin. You need to hear this testimony, the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, for our text this morning, it's divided into two parts. The first part is who John the Baptist is. The second part is what the John the Baptist says. So let's read John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, our first section this morning. And see how many times the word testimony shows up. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're not either the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Here's the thing we see in this first section. John the Baptist is the voice of preparation. He is the voice of preparation. Now, there's a Jewish delegation of leaders that come down from Jerusalem. They come down and they want to find out what all the buzz is about this John the Baptist guy that's come out eating locusts and wild honey and, and dresses funny and he's preaching and he's baptizing. What's going on here? So they send a delegation down and they basically ask John two questions. Here's the first question they ask John. Who are you? Who, who are you? Now they had in their mind possibly three identifying markers of who John the Baptist was. They, they thought, first of all, maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament that's come, and now he's the Messiah. And what does John say? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Okay, well, if you're not the Christ, then maybe you're Elijah. You see, they believed that Elijah would come back because if you remember from 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind. And Malachi has this prophecy that during the end times, Elijah will come back. And so they thought, maybe he's Elijah. And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. Okay, well, if he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, maybe he's the prophet. There was this Old Testament idea that there would be 
the prophet that would come and, and speak God's word. So they said, maybe you're the prophet. He says, I'm not any of these three. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And so they're like, well, then who are you? And here's his answer. It's the right answer. He simply says in verse 23, I'm a voice. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, interestingly, what does John the Baptist say? I am a voice compared to Jesus who is the Word. Remember, the Word in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word came in the flesh. Jesus is the eternal Word of God. And John the Baptist dare not compare himself to Jesus. He, he's like, I'm, I'm just a voice. Don't pay attention to me. What I have to say and who I'm pointing to is a whole lot more important than who I am. I'm simply a voice of preparation. He's a preacher. He's a herald. He's crying out in the wilderness. And that's what we need today, by the way. We need some John the Baptist to step up to the plate and preach the truth. Men who are not cowards, men who are not afraid, but men who emerge and cry out in the wilderness of sin and idolatry in our culture, you need to get right with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We need a bunch of John the Baptists in our day to cry out as voices in the wilderness. You know, this past week I was listening to a podcast of this pastor, He's a pastor of a gamer church. You're like, what's a gamer church? It's a, game, it's a church of video game players. They, they don't meet together. They just play video games together, and he's kind of their pastor. And um, his, this is what he was saying to his video game church. Basically, he said, some of you are really laughing over there. Like, this is really funny. Um, he, this is what he said to his church of gamers. You know what? Jesus will give you a really good life, dudes. Just try Jesus. Try him out. Just give Jesus a try. He really, really wants to be in your life if you would just let him and give him a try. Poor Jesus. He's just waiting for you to accept him into his heart, into your heart. That's not what John the Baptist, John the Baptist does not present a wimpy Jesus that needs us. He comes and says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for, what does he say? The Lord, the King. The king is coming. Now, you must think about this for a moment. Prepare the way. Make the path straight. In other words, in the Old Testament, it was this idea of, of removing obstacles that would stand in the way of the Christ coming. So let's just ask the question, what is your greatest obstacle this morning that needs to be removed before you receive the Lord? Your greatest obstacle is not that you don't have enough knowledge, that you're not smart enough to figure this whole thing out. Your greatest obstacle is sin that you are dead in sin, that you are under guilt, and that you need to repent and believe in Jesus to have your sins forgiven. That's the greatest obstacle. Now, the first question they ask is, who are you? I'm a voice. I'm a voice preaching. I'm a voice crying out. I'm a voice saying, prepare the way for the Lord. And then the second question they ask him is, okay, if you're not the prophet, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the Messiah, then question number two, why are you baptizing? This is really strange, John. Why are you baptizing people in the Jordan River? 
Now, to understand why that question was asked, we need to understand the issue of baptism during John's time. Here's what was happening. During John's time, there was purification and baptismal rites that were done. But here's how it was done. If you were a Gentile, you were considered unclean. And if you converted to Judaism as a Gentile, you would ceremonially be baptized as a way to say, I'm leaving my old life of pagan Gentilism, and I'm becoming a cleansed as a Jew, and so you're converting to Judaism. It was Gentile to Jew. That's why you would be baptized. But here's the kicker. What's John the Baptist doing? He's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. That would have been very offensive and very confusing to those people who came to ask him, why are you baptizing? We don't need to be baptized. We're not unclean. We're not outsiders. We're not pagans. Why in the world would Jews need to be baptized? And John the Baptist cuts that to the root and says, listen, you need to repent and be ready for the coming Messiah. You see, John's baptism was a baptism of preparation, of preparation and repentance and readiness. If you will do me just a favor, turn in your Bibles real briefly to Matthew. Keep your finger in John, but turn over to Matthew chapter 3, and and you really see John doesn't give us a lot of detail as far as what the message that John the Baptist actually preached is, but Matthew gives us his sermon, this great seeker-sensitive sermon that really warms your heart, and he comes with the white shining teeth and the nice hair and you know, he, he's, he's so smooth and nice, and everybody loves John the Baptist. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Matthew 3, 1 through 10. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, what a message. Repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Get yourself ready. Repent. Confess. The Messiah is coming. You see, John is a voice getting people prepared for the Messiah. He's baptizing them to get prepared for the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not the one that draws attention to himself. He's just a voice pointing you to the Messiah. Now we get to the second half of our verses this morning. Verses 29 through 34. This is the very first time we see Jesus in action. And what does John the Baptist tell us about Jesus? And and all Jesus does here is he simply walks by. Let's look at verse 29 and following. This is the next day. The next day, this is John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water 
that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist here gives four powerful testimonials or confessions about who Jesus truly is. Four confessions, four testimonies, four um, remarks, if you will, of who Jesus is. Here's the first, the, probably the one we're most familiar with. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold, verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's a very strange way to refer to Jesus as a lamb. He's walking by as a human, as a man. There's the lamb. Now, that, what, what do you mean the lamb? Not a lamb, but the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why, why is Jesus called the lamb? I won't get into detail about this right now, but as we go through the Gospel of John, the Passover plays a huge role in how to interpret the Gospel of John. But think about this for a moment. Why is Jesus called the lamb? If you go to the Old Testament and you follow the Old Testament stories, God has always provided a substitute through a blood sacrifice to forgive the sins of his people. Think about Abraham. He's up on Mount Moriah ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And God provided a ram in the thicket as a substitutionary atonement. Genesis 22, 12-14. The angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, and Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God provided a substitute. It was sacrificed instead of Isaac. Or how about Passover? In Exodus chapter 12, God gives instructions to the Israelites on how to celebrate Passover with the, the blood of the Lamb. In, in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 and 23, Moses called all the elders of Israel, said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The ram in the thicket, the Passover lamb. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus as the lamb. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, 
That is the lamb. Jesus has laid upon him. And and just a side note, in the original Hebrew text there, when it says he has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, it really means that all of that sin of ours came violently upon Jesus. It assaulted him on the cross, our sin. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. All throughout the Old Testament, there's prophecies of Jesus being the Lamb. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were you ransomed with? The precious blood of Christ like that of a Lamb without blemish or spot. Now, Jesus is the Lamb. But notice what John says about him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away takes away your sin, bearing your sin, getting rid of your sin, carrying away your sin, bearing it in his body, forgiving your sin. You know, God did not spare Jesus. And when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, the angel of the Lord stopped him and provided a substitute. On the cross, God did not stop, but went all away and had his one and only son killed, did not spare him. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 1 John four ten, And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, the word propitiation, just a big word that means in his body, Jesus took all of God's justice, all of God's righteous justice against sin in his body in our place so that we would not have to experience all of God's righteous justice against sin. Jesus took it as our substitute in our place. He forgave us. He carried it away. So Old Testament Genesis, the lamb, the the ram in the thicket. Passover, the lamb. Isaiah 53, the Lamb. Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. How does Revelation portray Jesus in the very throne room of heaven? One day we will be there. He's referred to as the Lamb that has been slaughtered, literally. Revelation 5, 6-9. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing, standing because he's resurrected, as though it had been slain, slaughtered, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you. The Lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. From Genesis to Revelation, the motif of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins is there, and it's Jesus. And John the Baptist says, Behold, look, there he is. Isn't it interesting? The first time Jesus shows up in the flesh, walking along, he's the Lamb of God. Now, but there's a second thing that John refers to him as. John's second confession. 
And you don't quite catch this. You don't quite catch this in your English translations. But in verse 30, Jesus is the pre-existing one who can accomplish the forgiveness of sins on the cross. He's the pre-existing one. Well, what what does John the Baptist say in verse 30? This is he of whom I said, after me comes one, a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Was is in the tense that we looked at earlier that means continual action in the past. What John is saying is John is basically, John the Baptist is protecting the deity of Christ. He's saying Jesus has always existed He was before me. Not just he was born before me. He was before me. He's always been before me. In eternity past, he was before me. Just go back up to verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Before me, he was. So he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. He's the the Christ who always was, the eternal, always existing Christ. But number three, the third confession, Jesus transforms and cleanses us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, John focuses in on an event in Jesus' life that confirms that he is who he says he is. John is born witness to this, but then God brings evidence. What does John the Baptist do? John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. But it says that a dove, the Spirit of God, like a dove, came and it remained on him. There's a key there. It remained on Jesus. Jesus was anointed, if you will, by the Holy Spirit in his baptism, inaugurating his public ministry, God putting a stamp of approval on Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so here's this whole issue. In the book of Isaiah, especially, there's these prophecies of the servant of the Lord that would come and be anointed of the Holy Spirit. This Messiah figure would come, and you would know he's the Messiah because the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. It's all through the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, prophecy about Jesus, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It shall rest upon him, it shall remain upon him, he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61.1 The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you know when Jesus came in the flesh, his first public sermon in Uh, Luke chapter 4, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes and he he takes the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he opens it up and he sits down and he reads that exact text and he says, it's me, dudes. I don't think Jesus said it quite like that. But he said, it's me. This whole prophecy is about me. You know what they wanted to do? Throw him off a cliff because he claimed to be the anointed spirit or be anointed by the spirit as the Messiah come in the flesh. The early church confessed this in Acts 10, 37-38. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit 
and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This was bona fide proof to John the Baptist that this was the Messiah because the Spirit of God remained on him. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah come in the flesh to accomplish God's work in the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice what John says. Listen, I'm just baptizing you with water, but Jesus, when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's different. What do you mean, baptize us with the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament as well, there was a prophecy of a coming day when the Messiah would show up The Spirit-anointed Messiah would show up, and he would do a cleansing, he would do a washing, but it would be permanent. It would be internal. It would be a new heart. Where do we get that? We get that from Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27. God makes this prophecy about a coming day. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what Jesus is doing when he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's coming to fulfill that role as the Old Testament prophecy of the spirit anointed Messiah who's going to come and cleanse us and wash us and take out that heart of stone and put in that heart of flesh and give us the Holy Spirit to come live inside of us. That's what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that the Old Testament sacrificial system was so inadequate? It could never do anything. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, that one day of the year where their sins were forgiven, it was only for, it was only for unintentional sins, by the way. If you committed any high-handed sins, you did not get atoned for. And it was only lasted a year. And so every year you had to keep having your sins atoned for, your sins atoned for. And it never could cleanse the conscience. It could never go to the root of the problem. It could never give you a new heart. It was only just a picture of what Jesus would come to do. And so Jesus, as the Spirit-anointed Lamb of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, comes to baptize us in, in the Holy Spirit, which means that he's come to transform us from the inside out, to cleanse us, to give us new hearts. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can transform us. Only Jesus can absolutely and totally and, for, and finally forgive you of all sin. He's, he's, he's the only one that can totally take away all your sins. Past, present, future, cleanse you from the inside out. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit? He lives in you forever. What does Jesus promise later on in the Gospel of John? John 14, 16 through 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's that's the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. That's the promise of being baptized in the Holy Spirit that Jesus came to do. To give us the Holy Spirit, not only just on us, but in us forever to cleanse us to renew us to change us from the inside out only the lamb of god can do that only the spirit anointed prophetic messiah that was prophesied in the old testament whom the spirit of the lord rested upon in his baptism can do that and john the baptist saw it with his own eyes and said okay i've got bona fide proof with my own eyes i'm an expert witness but i've also got the the dna 
the Holy Spirit coming like a dove. And here's John's final confession. His final confession. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Look at verse 34. There's some emphatic language here. When John says, I have seen and I have borne witness, it's in a Greek tense that really means he's confident, he's assured, it's, it's foolproof, he, he's convinced. I have fully seen. I've seen this with my own eyes. I've borne witness. God has brought the Holy Spirit down to remain upon Jesus. This is the Son of God. I'm convinced. I am convinced. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God that can take away your sin. He's the pre-existing one that has the power to do that. He's the one that gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. So the question is, okay, how do you respond to this good news? What does John do? What does John say about Jesus? He says, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. Now back then, that was a menial task to come and untie somebody's sandal. Let me just ask you a question. Anybody here worthy to be in the presence of Almighty God? Anybody worthy of salvation? Anybody here worthy to be forgiven? None of us is worthy. All we can do is come before the feet of Jesus and say, I'm unworthy to even receive salvation, but I know because you're the Lamb of God, you will take away my sins if I confess those to you. I come to you and I bow. You're the king. Have you humbled yourself? Have you humbled yourself under the king? Have you had your sins forgiven? Do you have the gift of the Holy Spirit through salvation? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? See, here's what you need to do this morning. You need to listen to the voice of John the Baptist. He's a voice. He's a powerful voice. And what has he done? He's told us, look, behold, I've seen it. I've confessed it. I've seen it. I've borne witness. I've seen the Holy Spirit. I've seen Jesus. You need to listen to me. I am the witness. I am the voice. And notice what John the Baptist does for us. Go back to verse 29 for a moment. What does he tell us? Behold! Are you guys awake now? What does behold mean? He could have just said, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He says, behold. In the original language, that means stop. Look. Stop what you're doing and fix your gaze upon the Lamb. Look at Him. Seek Him. Put your gaze upon Him. Stop what you're doing right now and look. Everybody, look at the Son of God. Look at the Lamb of God. Look at Him who takes away your sin. It's very similar to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Two things we must do this morning. Will you look? Will you look toward the Lamb of God who can take away your sins? And will you listen to the voice of John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. You know, I was reading this past week, back in Scotland in the old days, they had a gold thing that was embedded on their pulpits. Now, they probably had those big, huge pulpits, but they had a big plaque that the pastor could see. 
And it simply said this on the pulpit. Sir, we want to see Jesus. So every time I step in the pulpit or every time we open the scriptures or even John the Baptist, what are we all doing? We need to see Jesus. We need to hear the voice of one saying, the Lamb of God is coming. Has he taken away your sin? Are you seeing him this morning? As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what better way than to behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning in preparation to take the Lord's Supper, communion. Would you spend just a few moments responding to the Word of God? in your heart this morning? Would you spend some time beholding the Lamb of God? Would you look to Jesus this morning? We have John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you said there was no other person born that was as great as John the Baptist. He didn't draw attention to himself. He drew all the attention to you. It's simply a voice. A voice crying to us to look, to behold the Lamb of God. We want to see you this morning, Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's never experienced the forgiveness of sins being taken away by the Lamb of God, Jesus, Lord, would today they look to you? Would they place their trust in you? Would they repent? Or in Christ alone today? Lord, for the rest of us who have done that, would we have a joy and a refreshing gaze at Christ in our salvation? And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, would we just be in joy, be in awe, be in celebration that our sins have been fully and finally and forever taken away by the Lamb of God? Thank you, Jesus, for being our Lamb. Slaughtered, We look forward to that day in heaven when we will be around your throne singing the new song. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. For by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. We look forward to that day, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.